0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com
2: slash podcast.
3: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network.
1: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, your host of Speaking Broadly and on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I introduce you to extraordinary people working in the food world who share their successes and their challenges. On today's show, one woman I've known for years who's impressed me with her honesty and her pursuit of excellence, whether competing on Top Chef or writing a cookbook. She is one of my guests. And another is a woman who I just met who's changing the lives of Bangladeshi women in Detroit. But first, I'm going to tell you about a meal that I recently ate. I was in Raleigh, Durham to do a Q&A with star chef uh, Vivian Howard. Maybe you've seen her show. It's called A Chef's Life. If you haven't, you need to, to check it out. Her producer and partner, Cynthia Hill, has created a completely different type of food TV. Instead of everything feeling uh, either perfect, manufactured, or on the other side, like reality TV, this is like a blooper reel of life. It's so real and so engaging. In any case, that's why I was in Raleigh Durham and why I went to this restaurant called Piedmont because the chef there had once worked for Vivian Howard at her restaurant Chef and the Farmer. So, it was brunch. It was a special brunch because of the premiere, and the dish that I cannot get out of my mind is a deep-fried chicken liver. Now, part of reason I can't get out of my mind is that I they were so good, I had to hold myself back. Like, I only ate one and a half of them, but there were three, and I'm still sort of longing for those I didn't have. But if you can imagine something that is like crinkly and sort of shaped like a rock that fell from Earth, like an, an asteroid, um, that is a nutty brown. And when you bite into it, it's really crunchy, but inside, it's kind of that creamy chicken liver thing. It was juicy and. You're in the South, and that's exactly what things are supposed to taste like in the South and look like there, and it was awesome. On to my first guest. My first guest is Emily Stegaitas from Bandu Gardens in Detroit. Emily works with Bangladeshi women to bring produce from their incredible home gardens to restaurants in the area. She's a tremendous inspiration to me. I am thrilled to be talking to you, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly. Thank you. Glad to be here. So visiting you in Detroit and seeing your organization, Bandu Gardens, in action was the highlight of my trip. I'm so in awe of what you've done, helping Bangladeshi women gardeners bring their produce to restaurants and find a market for that and also find a market for their skill as cooks um, in catering. Tell me, how did you begin Bandu Gardens?
4: Well, so to start with, the word, um, our name, Bundu Gardens, is, uh, Bundu is the Bangla word for friend. So the idea of kind of growing friendship. And that's really where it all came from, was when I moved to the neighborhood, a woman named Minara had also just moved to the neighborhood, and she had moved from Bangladesh, and she spoke no English and I spoke no Bangla, but we just connected really deeply. And the gardens and the kitchen were really the way that we connected. And so, um, as a gardener and as a cook myself, it's you know, it's a language that you don't necessarily need words for, you know, it's it's a language of, of smells and sights and of doing and handwork. And so we just kind of worked alongside each other and became better friends and learned, uh, learned each other's language through the names of vegetables and the names of foods. Um, so that's how it really got started. And then um, through working with um, restaurants in the city, uh, we were able to start selling the vegetables. And one of the things that we would do every time that we sold vegetables to a new account is that we would invite people over to the house, uh, to taste, you know, this is how these, these vegetables that are being grown here, these South Asian vegetables like bitter melon and long bean, there's real people behind them, you know, and it matters what, uh, when you order and if you order consistently, uh, but also to understand what people were doing with them, uh, in their, in their kitchens, so that when the vegetables kind of traveled into, a different chef's kitchen. They would at least have an understanding of, of kind of what the the history and the narrative and that rich tradition that the vegetables were coming out of.
1: I didn't realize that you had the the chefs over. Did they go to Menara's, um, which is where
4: we yeah. were? Yeah. Yeah. So that was really that was a really key piece of it because um, it wasn't just about you know kind of growing friendship between me and Menara and these other ladies in the neighborhood, but the idea of growing friendship between uh, between cooks. And gardeners, you know, and really trying to create a more robust relationship, instead of um, and kind of a set of accountability, um, especially as the restaurant scene here is picking up, and you know, different cuisines are really being highlighted and celebrated. You know, how do we make sure that the growers of the produce that makes this food so great are also being celebrated? And, and really honored for their knowledge.
1: So, what are some of the greens that they grow, and and how is it possible to grow enough to feed a restaurant?
4: Well, and so that's one of the things. So, um, when we're working with families, uh, it's families who are all growing for their own personal use, first and foremost. So, um, and these are families that you know in Bangladesh owned rice fields and tea fields and mango trees, and um, you know, and are coming from a really robust. Um, tradition of agriculture, and so when they're planting here, they are um, they're intercropping and they're trellising and really just squeezing as much out of these pretty small backyard gardens as possible. Um, and so one of the ways that we are able to supply to restaurants is that a lot of people are growing the same thing at the same time. Uh-huh. So if the restaurant needs thirty pounds of beans, it might you know, sometimes it might be 30 pounds from one gardener, but other times it might be that I go to three gardeners and get 10 pounds each or 10 gardeners and get three pounds each. So there's a lot of coordination work that goes on, but, you know, another way of thinking about that is that there's a lot of relationship building that goes on.
1: Right, and I think one point that you've made about uh, this in the past is that this is women's work. It's something that the women have complete control over. The men... Um in these families. They have jobs. They go off to the the jobs, but this has given the women um a sense of control and purpose. Um is that the right way to put it?
4: Yeah, I mean I guess um, you know, one of the things that I saw um when I moved to the neighborhood is that, you know, these um these ladies like my friends Minara and Salima and Mamota and Razna are all working so hard um, you know every day you know to cook for six or seven people in their household and doing all the gardening Um, but then when you know even the the Bangladeshi restaurants here which are great you know and it's great to have local restaurants but they're all run by men. Uh, and so just kind of looking at that and saying like, Hmm, well, how do we, how do we honor this work that is being done? And how do we create a platform for this work? Um, and then kind of create a a social network too, you know, because for men, a lot of social relationships are developed through the, the network of jobs. Um, and if you come and you don't have a job, it's a harder network. You know, it's harder to socially network. And so, um, so just offering some opportunities for cross-pollination within our neighborhood, but then also thinking about the broader community, you know, the, the food-affinity community, not just our geographic community, ethnic community, but how do we use food to kind of define our community? And so creating rela- relationships within, um, you know, so a lot of the restaurants we work with for women out, like food has been one of our our dearest friends and connections, and the farmer's hand with Kiki and Rouhani. Um, So working, you know, so we're working in the neighborhood together and then working with other women-owned businesses, and so this idea of women supporting women supporting women.
1: And what has the reception been in, in Detroit, those first chefs that you invited in, and have they become part of your world and they're terribly supportive or...?
4: Definitely, yeah, and that's actually how we started doing um, the the pop up dinner events. Is that after having a couple of the chefs over for meals, this is like, oh my god, this is this is the best food in the city, you know? Like this is what we want to be eating. You guys should, you know, do you want to do a pop up restaurant at ours? And uh, and so then, you know, so we had hosted them in our neighborhood, and then they in turn opened up, um, you know, their you know essentially their home, their restaurants to us, and said like, hey, you know, like be the hostess here, and so. Um, so there's a real reciprocity, um, you know, and now we'll go places and, you know, people will recognize each other. And so it's it's a really exciting way to be kind of kind of broad, broadening everyone's horizons um, and using food as that bridge.
1: And so how has this um, changed your own life? Because you had had a job and you've given up that job to take this on. Um, has it changed you in some fundamental way?
4: immensely so um, and I think the biggest thing um, was learning how to accept help um, you know and it's it's you know it's easy to to make a, a simple narrative about helping you know and and from the outside sometimes people will say like oh my gosh you're so good to help these families and, and I say oh you have no idea they take care of me um, you know for the first six months that I lived in the neighborhood I I didn't cook once, um, wow. you know, I had, you know, I had different families, you know, like vying for like, no, I'm cooking for her today. No, I'm cooking for her today. Um, and, and to, to learn to receive that, you know, because the the skills that I was bringing to the table, like, you know, being able to translate, um, being able to translate forms or drive to the grocery store or use my English literacy um, came so naturally to me that I didn't think about those as... Um, Kind of as a as a, a source of power. Um, and so to to humble myself and say, like yes, thank you. I will I'll allow you to cook for me and recognize that that, that helps me immensely and that I can receive that. Um, was I think one of the biggest lessons and has, has really um, ensured that there's not really that there's not a hierarchy. You know that we're that we're really peers uh, within this food space who are just bringing different skill sets to the table uh, and doing things together that we couldn't do separately.
1: You also are helping them. I think you were mentioning uh, in some with some life skills. You're taking um, kids to a doctor's appointments or you know being a, a translator. So from food, you've really um, sort of become completely intertwined. In their lives, food has such an amazing power to um, to connect. What would, what do you imagine is the way this program could grow? Because I think, am I right to say that you work with six women right now? Yeah. Do you yeah. think Do you think that it could grow? Do you think that um, this is just the exact right number of people, and this is what you, as one person, can do?
4: Well, so that's. Um you know, we have I have people knocking on my door and saying, "Can you sell my squash?" You know, so I think that there is within the community there is a demand um, for you know bringing additional vegetables to market. You know, and and also you know, ladies will say like, "Oh, like you have to taste my samosas." There's you know, <laughs> uh, and so so there's this you know this um, that, you know cooking really is a sense of pride. You know, and it, it's this way of taking care and showing care for people. And so. To be able to open that up to more people would be incredible, and so we're we're in the process now of figuring out okay, well, how do we, how do we get a little kitchen going, um, and how do you know, and and what would that allow you know, so we could start doing some like value-added products to use even more of the um, of the fresh produce and really capture um, some of you know the, the vibrancy of the chili peppers and the you know the earthiness of the amaranth greens and the the really unusual kind of sorrel taste that the hibiscus greens have. So how could we, you know, kind of capture those uh, for year round? Um, And how could that create some kind of part-time supplementary jobs in the neighborhood? Um, So I think ideally the idea is to grow it, but to grow it um, very slowly and deliberately to make sure that it always does remain um, more than it is in a way, you know, that those relationships really are central and that... uh, and the kind of neighborhood network is really is really what's primary. Uh, but yeah, so we're trying to figure out how we support that work, how we grow it and how do we how do we have a little space um, that's not just, you know, I mean, I love that Minara opens her home to people, but you know, how do we how do we open that up even more? Uh, so we're looking for a spot in the neighborhood and to build out a little kitchen to be able to do that. How does Minara
1: feel about having people into her home? That's a very it's so Generous. and it's not something that would come naturally to most people,
4: yeah. I mean, I think that there's I think the best kind of analogy to it is kind of the idea of southern hospitality. You know, there's this idea of like you know, if you go and you knock on someone's door in you know that you know, in kind of like genteel southern hospitality, you'd get invited in and a glass of sweet tea. And so there's this this sense of care that I think is very similar. Um, and Minara has told me stories about, you know, that, in Bangladesh, her family would host a lot of parties, and it was, you know, it was not uncommon to, ha- you know, host a wedding for somebody, and there would be 400 people, you know, oh my and gosh. That she had, and that they would have these pans that were big enough that you could cook a whole cow in oh one goodness. pan to feed 400 <laughs> people. Um, and so, when the first time that um, Lucy and Molly and some of the other ladies from Roses came by. Um, Minara was so happy and you know and then she said to me you know oh this is what it sounds like to have a house full of sisters oh. and you know she's one of four sisters and so I think um, for her she's most comfortable surrounded by a lot of people um, and so and that's been that's been a really wonderful thing to, to be folded into and to you know that radical hospitality of just like someone deeply caring for you um, and, and wanting to share that and spread that and kind of create more opportunities for that, that kind of warmth and generosity.
1: So for people who want to help share that radical hospitality, how can they either get in touch with you or make a donation to the cause or follow you on social? What, what is the best way?
4: Yeah, so um, we're kind of most up-to-date on Instagram just because it is such a visual platform and, uh, you know, you don't need a lot of words for it and just the vegetables kind of speak for themselves. Um, But then we do have a website, so it's our name, Bundu Gardens, B-A-N-D-H-U, gardens.com, and there's a little button there if anybody feels like supporting the work. Um, And if you're in Detroit or in the kind of Midwest, come come eat with us. You know, we post our events there and, and we would really, you know, Love, love to meet more people who are interested in the work. It is
1: fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be on Speaking Broadly today, and I look forward to seeing your programs grow and flourish, just like those great plants in the gardens. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dana. Take care. Bye. My next guest is Chef Kristen Kish. Kristen has a cookbook called Kristen Kish Cooking, coming out this month. You will probably know her as the winner on as a winner on Top Chef, or if you've if you're lucky, you've had an opportunity to try her food at Monton, the restaurant in Boston, or perhaps even take a cooking class with her at Stir, also in Boston. And if you're really lucky, uh, you might have been to one of her pop ups around the country. At Chef's Club, uh, Kristen popped up, and it was one of my favorite meals of the entire year. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Okay. I am so excited about your cookbook. Uh, Of course, because I feel like I've lived through some of it. I've gotten to know Kristen a a bit over the years because when I was at Food and Wine Magazine, we had a relationship with Top Chef. So I didn't know what to expect, Kristen, honestly, because, you know, was it going to be the food that you were doing at Monton? Was it going to be food from your childhood? Like, what was it going to be? And in fact, what it turns out to be is, Really, your autobiography—something that touches on uh, things your father loved, something that touches on your travels from the show that you did, Thirty Six Hours, something from, you know, the time that you spent with Barbara Lynch at Montan. So, as your as your first question, <laughs> I would love to have you give me what you think your autobiography <clears throat> is through dishes in that incredible cookbook.
5: You know, when it when the when the book was. I guess the offer to make a book was put in front of me. Uh, I took it the second time around. And, you know, even when I took it, I was like, well, w- w- what style am I? Like, people will always ask you, well, what, what do you cook? What kind of food do you cook? And I'm like, I cook a lot of different things. Um, and so I wasn't quite entirely sure of the direction in which to go. But what happened is that we started building my story. My writer and I, Meredith Erickson, who's absolutely stunning and amazing. Um, she started to pull my life story out and then through that I realized that my style of food is stories from my life right and that's kind of what we all think of when you know you're a chef like this is my food this is what but what I like to do is tap into um, you know the food that I had as a kid which is one of my favorite things to do it's one of the easiest ways to be inspired uh, to create a new dish and so that's where I that's where I started and then Fortunately, in a lot of different ways, because I'm not tied to one restaurant, I could do whatever I wanted. And then we tied it all together with uh, impeccable technique, which is what I strive
1: to do. So, okay, give me some dishes. So a dish from your childhood that's in the book. A dish from... Stir. A dish from the incredible French chef who was your first mentor. So... I will say, you know, I'll start with Barbara. The one thing that
5: she really, really. So Barbara Lynch Yes, from Barbara Lynch, the amazing Barbara Lynch. She uh, really tapped into the passion of pasta making for me. So I have a section of pasta and grains in there. And it's one of my favorite things to do for any dinner for myself, for date night or for anything. Um, and so I can give her basically all that credit for teaching me the skills of how to make pasta uh, and becoming confident in that. Um, And which is your favorite dish in the book? Which is your favorite pasta in the book? (laughs) Wow. That's going to be hard. Um, Okay. And I'll tie it into a childhood dish, which is um, a, a corn tortellini with radishes and tons of black pepper and like this really beautiful butter sauce. And that comes from, I mean literally getting out of the car going down the highway in michigan stopping at all these farm stores in a little can you jump you know dump 50 cents in go grab your corn and it was complete honor system and that brings me immediately back to my childhood And then we bring it back to uh, our home where I grew up. I sit out on the back deck. It's hot. I'm shucking. There's like silks kind of itching my arms. Um, But then sitting down to eat the meal that we all kind of prepared as a family, that was my first true memory of uh, helping my mom cook.
1: I mean, it seems like you actually, you were cooking when you were teeny. I mean, the idea of cooking arrived early yeah I picked up a knife at five and then I started just
5: going for it and then you know obviously through the years I actually learned what cooking was and not just cutting things up
1: (laughs) so (laughs) but you had a a mentor (coughs) who seems to have been a, a pivot point for you um and do you want to talk a little bit about him and how that ties into a recipe in the book
5: yeah, so the, the, one of the first restaurants I worked at um, that really tapped into opening my eyes to what style of food I wanted to do um, was Guy Martin, and then his uh, chef de cuisine was Gerard. And it was, it was this level of dining that I had never been exposed to. I'd worked in you know a handful of restaurants, but not to that level. And there was this level and strive for excellence um, that I really could appreciate. And so I took that and was inspired by him to be like, okay, what is my level of, uh, you know, what's my standard of excellence and how do I execute that? Um, and he really kind of, that was life, absolutely life changing. I was like, this is the road I want to be on. This is the direction I want to go in. Um, because before that I was just kind of flailing around trying to find it.
1: That's so interesting. And did you feel like within yourself, you had that notion that you would achieve excellence?
5: excellence? No, I, I never b- believe that I will ever achieve excellence. I can strive for it knowing that perfect doesn't exist. But what it does is it keeps this little carrot hanging and I will keep running after it fully knowing <laughs> that I'm never going to get there and that's okay. Um, but it keeps me honest. It keeps me um, always striving for something and never feeling like I've ever made it to anything.
1: There are a lot of people who would disagree with the last part of that <laughs> sentence, but we're just going to go with you on that. So one thing that struck me in the book is that all of the dishes are magnificently plated. First, the plates themselves are beautiful. And I just found out that Kristen made a few of the plates. So when you see this book, just think, the in the mind of a chef, you want to not only make the food, but create the plate. But was it... Um, at, Guy Martin's restaurant that you learned about plating because it's so sophisticated.
5: Yeah, um, definitely. That was the first time that I've ever had to buy a pair of tweezers. Um, (laughs) Had like beautiful little quenelle spoons just to get it just perfectly. Um, Yeah, that's where I was like, oh, wow, this is what it means to put food on a plate. Um, and then through the years, you know, I've learned what my style was and
1: how I wanted my food to be perceived by the diner. Um, so one, one of my favorite dishes that you've ever um, served me was a, it started out, I saw it as just a bunch of tomatoes, beautiful tomatoes on a counter in a kitchen. But by the time it came to my plate, the way that you had put the tomatoes on the plate, I'd never seen anything like it before. So because the tomatoes were at different angles, some were sitting on their backs, some were sitting on their stomachs, some were um, propped up at an angle. What was going through your mind to create that? And how does that Like, what can a home cook do to get a little Kristen Kish style?
5: Well, at the end of the day, you have to look at what your product is and how it's going to soak in whatever flavor that you want it to be, right? And so, you know, as you cut different, you know, the ugly tomatoes and oblong shapes, and some need to be sliced because they have bigger pockets when they're sliced and they sit on you know, flat on the plate and some of them need a little bowl. So you kind of prop them up Um, because if you take a tomato, whole tomato and dump a vinaigrette on it, it's just going to, it's going to slide right off. (laughs) The best thing about tomatoes are these pockets and these seeds that just kind of soak up whatever you want to put on there. And so there's a method to the madness. And, uh, you know, some people maybe could see it as being slightly, uh, micromanaging of the food, (laughs) but it's also understanding your product and knowing how it's going to, um, kind of take in the flavor.
1: Okay, that is not what I thought you had in mind. And that makes so much sense to me. Because to me, it was as if someone had given you, like, great, like, it was me, and I'm not a chef. You know, it was like being in nursery school, and someone gives you all these blocks, and you're like, what kind of tower can I build? But of course, you're a chef, and you're building (laughs) flavors. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense to me. You know, as
5: as diners, and I think we've experienced this many times, as we go out to dinner so many different times, your palate can get really bored very quickly. Um, And, you know... Every other restaurant in the summertime, or maybe every restaurant, does a tomato salad. But how are you going to make it different? Um, and how are you going to showcase uh, different flavors so you don't get bored of something? Um,
1: and so that's just that's how you yeah. think. So I love that you said it at the beginning of our conversation how so often you go back to childhood. One of the things that astonished me in your book was that when you went back to um, childhood, the translation was so elegant. So you would create a Parmesan cheese sauce that, in your mind, connected you to dipping chicken fingers into (laughs) cheese. I'm like, okay, that is so distant for me. Or um, you have this incredible sweet sweet bread recipe Mm. that also harkens back to, uh, was it chicken nuggets? I mean, McDonald's was, from, yeah, McDonald's chicken nuggets and sweet and sour sauce from the packet. Okay, so I got to ask you, like, <laughs> how does that happen? I mean, is your childhood memory so strong and so vivid that you're taking texture and and flavor, and then marrying it to things that you've seen out in the world? Or, like, how do you put that memory together with this beautiful food that you now produce? I mean,
5: at the end of the day, like, whether you eat a beautiful, uh, you know, the sweetbreads with the sauce, the reasoning, and the grapes, or you had the McDonald's chicken nuggets, you what sticks with you is the balance of flavor, the texture, um, and kind of the mouthfeel of what it is. And it doesn't matter high end or low end. We tap into both of those things in both of those dishes, and so that's kind of where it all started. I was like, God, like who? I mean, maybe there are a lot of people out there that don't like the chicken nuggets and <laughs> sour sauce, but um, you know, highbrow and lowbrow food. Just I, there is not a vast difference. Yes, there's a quality difference for sure, um, but flavor,
1: texture, memory—absolutely not. I think we're all intertwined in that sense. Um, yeah, it was a leap for me. It was a leap for me, but I'm I'm much happier to go with you like <laughs> along the sweetbread train. <laughs> um, so when um, I think about the food in, in the book, you're uh, appealing to people on many different levels. Like I was looking for something to cook for my daughter for dinner, and I found these amazing chicken thighs um, that I was like, I actually have all these ingredients at home, and, and I could make this. And there are things that are extremely... Elevated, but most many of the recipes in this book um, show your fine dining background, your exquisite technique, and um, although it could be technique, like, I loved that you boiled potato, that you braised potatoes. Mm-hmm. I've never thought of braising potatoes. Like, oh my god, that was such a cool idea. I ramble. In any case, <laughs> I was um, I was wondering if I sent you into a deli mm, or like a gas station what could you make me? Okay,
5: I will give you an example. And so it was, uh, I was in Montana cooking with, uh, you know, good friend chefs or whatever. And, you know, they throw us into like this quick fire, you know, meanwhile, we had, you know, you're drinking cocktails in the afternoon, it was just supposed to be this fun, light thing. And so in the in the box was um, canned smoked oysters, um, barbecue potato chips, and I can't remember some produce and I was like okay the first thing and maybe it's because I eat so many potato chips is I was like okay well this is potato chips but if you grind it it turns into flour and flour you can make pasta or dumplings and all this stuff and then the smoky barbecue and the smoky smoked oysters like this all makes sense to me like in a split second I was like yes I know what I'm gonna do so I ground up the potato chips uh mixed in a little bit of rice flour all-purpose flour uh milk egg and made a pasta dough and I basically made dumplings and okay. then I made a smoked oyster sauce. Wow! So barbecue potato chip stuff. So it's <laughs> a, and that's wh- and this is what I kind of want the book to be and why it's so technique driven is once you know the techniques, right? You can apply them and understand what it does to the food. And so whether it's a bag of potato chips or the most beautiful t- potatoes that were just dug out of the ground at some f- fabulous farm,
1: you c- you'll know what to do with both of them, right? So you're you're educating uh, as you. Um, Along the way, because I hope so, yeah. You know, I had never thought of braising potatoes, but now I might think of braising something else in that salty, dense liquid that you were talking about and think about all of the flavor being absorbed through the skin of something. Right. And I don't necessarily um,
5: like, I don't, uh, yes, you can cook them exactly like they are in the book or whatever else, but. Also, you know, through telling a personal story and a head note, um, giving you and pointing out the techniques that were brought into this recipe, um, use whatever you can, you know, like. Again, my goal is not for everyone to cook like me. Well, and then I'd be out of my job. So, uh, <laughs> but I also want to inspire and empower, because that's uh, going back to Barbara Barbara Lynch as a mentor. She gave me the tools, but then she stepped back and let me figure out my own style, which I think is really important. So whether you're a home cook or uh, extern
1: or comey or whatever, um, or professional chef, hopefully there's something in the book that you can take away. I know I have already. So I, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Kristen Kish's um, background. We're going to hear some top chef stories uh, and more. So stick around. We'll be back after a short
3: break.
6: I'm Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob?
2: To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is
6: using stone mills? How old are we talking here?
2: Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind. And No matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at at uh, pompeii it's a quartz material it has a uniqueness about it's very hard it has a certain porosity and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and and sharpest parts it's an ingenious thing but very old i mean thousands of years old so it's uh, pretty cool
6: those sound like some really special stones
2: how do they work Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely 3, 4, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bed stone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible, but it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. You know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything.
6: Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the
2: cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing.
6: You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
1: Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I am ecstatic today to have Kristen Kish with me as my guest. Kristen, welcome post-break. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I've loved talking about your brand new cookbook that I hope everybody goes out to buy. It's called Kristen Kish Cooking, which, aside from the alliteration, I just think it's very direct. This is what you're doing. We see you cooking in all of the pages, which is great. The book opens with a beautiful autobiographical essay that takes us from your childhood all the way to the present. And you talk about things that are joyful, and you talk about things that are painful, and you talk about a lot of things that you've dealt with along the way. And so I just want to bring the listeners into your world a little bit. Um, you were uh, born in Korea, in Seoul, mm-hmm. and you were adopted by American parents when you were um, four months old. And uh, you were brought to Michigan to meet them, which I think doesn't, isn't exactly how it would happen today yeah I think a lot of parents go over, go over. and do start visiting um. but in any case so you um, you were adopted i I made a connection I wonder if you make the same connection your book is has a foundation in technique and one of the reasons it has a foundation in technique is that the book isn't from a, a place mm. it's from a person yes and I wonder if there's a connection to that in feeling like, you know, your place could be anywhere. And so you're really quite grounded in technique.
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, I could stem a lot of of my personality quirks back to being adopted. And I will happily do that because I have no I don't know how else to relate it to anything. So uh, everything from the slightly actually overly noncommittal, uh, can't decide on what city I want to live in. I kind of want to travel and do all these different things. Uh, maybe it's cause I lived in so many orphanages when I was a little baby or the fact of my, how I eat when I'm hungry and I want a buffet. I want it all at once because I, maybe back then I didn't really understand where I was going to get my next meal from. Um, so it, it, and quirks like that. And I think also, um, there's a sense of control. So a slight control freak. And I think it's because I was so out of control. I didn't have any control over my life or as a baby as my first four months. Um, and so I've learned how to take that control aspect and, and push it into a really healthy direction, which definitely took many, many, many years. Um, but I think that's where a lot of the technique thing comes from. It's like this idea of control and excellence and, and perfect. Um, also relating that to feeling very judged when I was a kid and judge me like judging myself, um, if I can do it the best, as I can or try to get it near
1: perfect, then maybe you can't judge me kind of thing. So why did you feel judged as a child? Just because you were um, a non-white child in a well, very white place? Or You know, I think it was judging myself.
5: I don't think it was necessarily the people around me. I was surrounded with the most beautiful childhood, the most beautiful friends and family. Um, I think it was me and myself. I think uh, there was a lot of different things. As I got older, I realized it was my sexuality, and I didn't know how to deal with that. Um, I was always very insecure and socially awkward, um, I would get really nervous even up until moving to Boston. I would get on the subway, and I'm like, oh, my God, not saying people are staring at me, but I'm like, oh, my God, what are they thinking about me? Um, and I didn't have any self-confidence and uh, an idea of
1: self-worth yet. And how did you grow that? Because that's a, it's a journey. So like, what are the first steps on that journey to self-confidence? Uh, I played therapist to myself
5: a lot when I was a kid. And I also went to therapy, but I also lied in therapy the entire time. I really honestly believe so much stemmed from this idea of my sexuality and not understanding it and then becoming aware of it and then not feeling like I could actually live it. Um, and so I play, I ask myself why all the time, all the time. And uh, you know, obviously getting older and maturing, you understand how to process that and actually put the wheels into motion to better yourself. Um, and then honestly, Top Chef was a huge, huge player. And being comfortable with me because I was like, I went on the show, I did exactly who I was, and oh my gosh, it worked. <laughs> and so it was like <laughs> they liked you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I think we all have this thing of like, you know, I don't need everyone to love everything I do, but you know, y- you lead your life and uh, you know, as a kind, caring human being, because one that feeds your soul, and two, you want to pass it forward, and you don't want to basically be an asshole and then have people think you're an asshole. So. Um, <laughs> You know, I, it's it's been an interesting journey. I'm still I still play therapist myself all the time, um, but I'm settled. I'm settled in all the imperfections, and I'm okay with that, which actually makes me just
1: chill out. But of course, your your food is quite perfect. I have to say, you know. Um, it's, it's beautiful, it's controlled, it's balanced. I mean, your food reflects the person you want to be. I mean, yeah. it has a, an absolute, um, you know, it has an astonishing, an astonishing quality. Um, so when you talk about coming to terms with your sexuality, like how did you, you know, um, so you recognized it, and then at some moment you were able to mm. tell the world, call your mom and say, I'm bringing a... Go for for, it. Yeah.
5: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've known for as long as I've known. I can't even remember. Like, I always remembered being like, oh, my gosh, I wish I could date this person, meaning a woman, right? Um, All the crushes growing up were all, like, the female actresses and, like, some of the teachers and, like, all that kind of thing. And uh, I think... What ha- well, I know what happened. As soon as Top Chef happened and I was like, okay, I feel confident in some form of my professional relationship. And at the end of the day, I ended up meeting someone that I fell deeply in love with. And I mean, you know, love doesn't solve everything, but it sure as hell solves a lot of different things. Um, and so in that sense, love won for sure. And I was like, it's time. This time. So I told my mom, and once I told my mom, I told my best friends. And then it was like, oh, yeah, well, we already knew. And I was (laughs) like, great, okay, now I'm going to start living my life.
1: And you really felt
5: until then you just were not living your life. No, I I was like I was I was muted by so many different things and I was disservicing myself because of my own insecurities.
1: So what has changed the most? You know, when you took the mute, but I love the idea of, like, you know, taking off the mute button. Like when you lived loud, like what changed? What was the?
5: I didn't have to try as hard anymore. Mm. I could just be me because when you're trying to control every little thing and you're trying so hard and like this pressure, this legitimately physical weight of something holding you down you're, you're you're not you're not performing to the best of your abilities you're not loving freely you're not sharing your life with your family and your closest friends even um, and so as soon as you take that off you almost stop. You 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 stop trying, and you don't have to try as hard to be in somebody's face or to be this mm-hmm. thing that you think you're supposed to be. I
1: guess it. I mean, as you describe it, it's it, it saps a lot of energy to be, you know, untrue to yourself, and then potentially perpetuating a lie. I love the idea that you. I mean, I love hate the idea that you lied to the therapist. You know, <laughs> but I think you said like, I gave them just enough yeah. information to think like, okay, she's it's not perfect. know, yeah. <laughs> like you're just so smart. Um, you know, outthinking the therapist, but of course, it's not a great benefit to you to outthink right. the therapist. Well, in, in a lot
5: of ways, I realized, and, and it's the way my mom mothered me, uh, and it's the way Barbara mentored me. It was this kind of keeping you at a distance, but watching really closely to make sure you don't completely fall, but I'm going to let you fall. Uh-huh. Um, and that's how I learned that's if you tell me exactly what I have to do and like start hammering things at me, I, I'm, I shut down and I, I will run away from you. Um, so the whole lying to the therapist, like I had to get there myself, like yeah. she wasn't going to be able to get me there. And I know that, um, granted it was a lovely time talking to a human for an hour. Um, but
1: I had, yeah, I had a, find it on my own time. And that worked well. Yeah. Um there's a, there's another part in the autobiography where you talk about a struggle with um depression but it sounds like it was really related to this mm-hmm. feeling of not being able to be, you know, who you are. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
5: even when I was younger before I realized what sexuality meant, um I I was controlling everything. I was like, okay, what's going to give me this salary, this car, this house, this job? this life, these kids, these, like, I, was, I was supposed to do all these different things and it was just such a burden on me. Um, and I, I, geez, yeah, that, so, I mean, it started real young and then obviously, Becoming more aware of who I am and what depression means, what anxiety means, what social anxiety means—all these different things—I was like, okay, this—I ha- I have all these things, and yes, and then I started stemming them back um, and and started working backwards and tapped mm-hmm. into all my little steps to help heal myself.
1: That's beautiful. Let's talk about Top Chef because yeah. I know everywhere <laughs> I go, people are like. Yeah, that food mine thing was fine, but Top Chef. <laughs> tell me about Top Chef. I'm like, um, Top Chef was always really, really fun. And I still remember, you know, taking a dish out of your hands. You were at the back room when there were like there you were two people across the back mm. and your dish was delicious. Um, what was that experience like and what's its ongoing role like Top Chef? As I understand it, you have this flash of a moment. Mm. And then what you do with that flash of a moment is really up to you. You can ride it out so many different ways. It's, it's almost like you're at a a train station. There's a million trains that leave the, um, you know, the station of top chef. So what do you feel like the lasting effect of top chef is?
5: Oh God. Well, the whole top chef thing was, I, I did not want to do it. Um, Barbara made me do it. And I was like, okay. And, you know, it came at the right time where I was looking for this shakeup. You know, I was, I was uh, you know, out of, fresh out of a very long-term relationship. Um, you know, I started a new job. I was ready. I needed something. I was starting to feel bored with life. Um, and so I, I did it. And I think, I mean, so many different lasting impressions. But for me, um, the permission to be myself is really the thing that keeps carrying on mm-hmm. through and through, through all the different things that have come after.
1: So, what was your most um, most favorite moment uh, on and the show? So, I mean, there's so many, right? It's not like you had there's you've had a lot of experience on Top Chef by now, so picking one. But I think
5: one of I think I will say the most fun um, for me, because I mean, it, yeah, it's very difficult to pick to pick a favorite. But I think the most fun for me was there was this quick fire where everything in the pantry was wrapped in um, aluminum foil. And so you couldn't see anything. And by this time, we had probably shot, I don't know, 10, 12 different quick fires and or challenges. So you know the pantry. Um, And the most fun thing about it was Realizing that I kind of had a photographic memory. (gasps) Wow. I went in and like everything was wrapped, but I was like, I've seen this before. I know this. I know where the spices are. Meanwhile, you know, I know where they start and where they end and how they're alphabetically ordered. I know what the oil bottle looks like for the hazelnut oil, but different from the olive oil. Um, And so I made a cake and I figured out where all the baking good stuff was. And in my brain, I was like, this shit, finding a Carton of eggs is very simple <laughs> It's a very simple task. I was like, I'll go that way,
1: um, but yeah, that's that. That was the most fun. I was like, wow. Like, and who's the chef who you are most impressed with their skill? You know, in the kitchen because sometimes you mm-hmm. can't really tell, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, by the time it's edited, people win, people lose, but I'm not sure the best chef, always right. wins. Yeah. who yeah. What was your toughest
5: competitor? I Well, you know, coincidentally, she is the one who I went up against. But Brooke Williamson, there was something about her. She knew exactly what she was. And, you know, I think when you put chefs on TV or anyone on TV, a, lot, a couple things can happen. Some people just settle perfectly into themselves. And some play to the camera. It's a very awkward experience. And so you get nervous, and nerves come out in different ways. And so with Brooke, she was always just so she you didn't even have to see her think. She was like, "No, this is my this is my food. This is my style. This is what I'm going to do." Um and I admired that because uh I didn't quite have it yet, I don't think. Um and I s- probably still don't, but uh I I do have
1: to think a little bit more about it. It and, seemed effortless for her. Right. I'm sure if she was sitting in your place, she would say and it was really hard in their face. <laughs> Kish girl. <laughs> um and what do you think about the things you want to do more of mm-hmm. going forward? So this cookbook is an incredible um, project. Do you have a sense of, do you want a 40-seat restaurant? Do you mm-hmm. want to be a nomad? Do you right. want, what do you want? You know, I it, it's certainly changed. And what, um,
5: after I left Barbara, I, I Quit my amazing job that looked so perfect and shiny and lovely from the outside, but I wasn't. I wasn't quite happy, um, and I think what do I want to do? Like you said before, it's like all these different opportunities happen, which direction do you want them to go? And there have been different trial and errors. Um, But at the end of the day, I go back to, okay, why am I, if a project is presented, why are you going to do that? Okay, well, why? And then where does that why lead me for the next three steps? And then I'm like, I'll figure it out afterwards. Um, I do know that being in one spot for the next 20 years and a 20 year lease is not for me right now. Um, and right after top chef ended, you know, restaurant offers came in like floods. I was like, okay. And my reason for not doing a restaurant then was oh well, okay, if I open up a restaurant now, it's going to get this boom in 15 minutes. And then what happens after that? Like, you know, the next top chef is going to come, come along and where's my restaurant going to be? And I wasn't, confident or ready to say, here's my food, and I know it's great, and it, I, it will sustain time.
1: Do you think that the book helped you define your food in a way that is almost surprising, right? Because yeah. you'd think you would get a book deal because you knew your food, but mm-hmm. in fact, through this process, maybe you've arrived at your food?
5: Uh, yes, I think it's. I think it certainly changes all the time, um, given so many different experiences that I have. Uh, but the main question I always get is, "Well, what's your food?" And I'm like, "I don't know." Hopefully, this book is like, I don't have to answer that anymore. <laughs> I'll just like here, and I'll just take a look, take, buy my book, <laughs> or let me give you a copy. Um, I think it helps myself, uh, but even more so. Uh, outsiders that have never had my food understand who I am uh, as a chef
1: because right, the what one sees on t v it's you can really see your technique at play, mm-hmm. your determination and uh skill but it it doesn't have to be your food right, right? exactly
5: you know, uh, and that 's the best thing is because I worked at Stir and the menu changed every day, and now i 'm in d- doing different events or you know ten person dinner or a hundred people or you know, whatever, my menu and my food has to shift. So my style of food is finding someone else's style that fits the event and fits the occasion. Because I think I've mentioned this to you before. For me, it's about the experience. It's not about the f- the food becomes second to a lot of different things. It's about the experience as a whole and how you feel afterwards, um, feeling full emotionally and satisfied, you know,
1: through your stomach so they all work together so you've had great uh mentors along the way we always close speaking broadly with um nominating someone into the (laughs) you're like (laughs) no this is good this is good (laughs) um to the hall of dames so Mm. is there a woman that you'd like to nominate for the hall of dames someone in the food and beverage industry you admire and then why you admire them Okay, so can I give you two answers? You may. All right. Um,
5: Barbara. Uh, Barbara Lynch, again, she helped me find my voice and gave me permission to just do whatever the hell I wanted to do and what what was me. Um, and secondly, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, but you have played, oh. an inc- <laughs> no, seriously, but you have played an incredible role in my career and just, you know, the, the, the Coming out of sorts, both personally and professionally. We won't go there, but, um, you know, and and this ongoing idea of having a friend, a therapist, a mentor, uh, and an inspiring human in one body sitting across from me. That's
1: so sweet. Okay, well, guys, that's a really, as far as I'm concerned, a great way to end the show. (laughs) Thank you, Kristen, for joining me. Thank you, all your listeners, for joining us today. Come back again next week um, or listen to the next pod. I want to thank my amazing engineer, David Tattashore, for um, heroic duty. And (laughs) see you soon.